This is actually, I know it's pretty dark, but probably my favorite season of the year, especially when it gets to this time where the clocks change and it gets dark, not just because I can convince my kids to go to bed earlier. Um, that's not the only reason. But I like this time of the year. It's kind of cozy, um, especially when we come together as a church family on the Sunday nights to dive deeper into God's Word and be together. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2, so go ahead and turn your Bibles there. I'm going to read the chapter for you. We're doing a very short series on the book of Titus, and this short series is entitled The Blueprint of a Healthy Church. The Blueprint of a Healthy Church. And as we mentioned last week, uh, the island of Crete is a place that Paul left his disciple Titus, one that he was training. He left him there on the island of Crete to establish healthy churches in all the towns that existed on this small island. And we know that Christianity reached the island of Crete very early. In fact, there were Cretans that were there in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached the first gospel sermon. And they probably filtered their way back from Jerusalem uh, within a few weeks of being there on the day of Pentecost. And they probably went back to normal Jewish life uh, on this island while they uh, maintained belief in Jesus Christ. And they probably were part of what was known as the sect or the way. Um, they weren't really organized yet as a body of believers or, or as a church. And so Paul sends Titus to be in the island of Crete. And he says that he wants him to set in order that which is lacking in the churches. He wants there to be healthy, vibrant, stable bodies of believers in each of the towns that exist in the island of Crete. That's what he wants. And so Paul writes this letter as a blueprint on how Titus can do that effectively. And we saw last week in chapter 1 that the first order of business for Titus was to establish good leadership in the local church. He says, I want you to set in order that which is lacking. And then he says appoint faithful men to serve as overseers or elders in every place or in every city. He wants there to be leadership. Tonight we're going to talk about another aspect of a healthy church. When we, last week was leadership defines the church. Tonight, discipleship builds the church. So that's, the, that's where we're going to go tonight. Discipleship builds the church. Let's read chapter 2 uh, and then we'll have some comments to make. But as for you, Paul to Titus, <clears throat> teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, and show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may, may be put to shame, 
having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God, doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So the bulk of this chapter that, uh, again, we break it up into chapters. Paul was just writing to Titus to instruct him how to build and establish a healthy body. But the bulk of this section has to do with what has been termed discipleship. You know, the word discipleship actually doesn't find its place in that form in the New Testament. The phrase discipleship. It doesn't appear really anywhere in the New Testament, but it is a word that has been used to describe the relational activity that we see believers in the New Testament taking, where they encourage each other, where they train each other, where they work with each other and, and want each other to grow closer to Christ. It's actually taken from Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 28 when he was giving what's known as the Great Commission to go therefore and make disciples. The English translation of that, make disciples, is two words. The word make is the actual verb, and disciples is what you're making, the object. You're going to make disciples. But actually, originally, the word is not two, but one. Disciple is actually the verb. Go, Jesus would say, and disciple people. Do to people a discipling thing. You're supposed to take the action of discipling people. And of course, discipling from, as we see in Matthew chapter 28, starts at conversion, baptism, and works its way through, as Jesus would say, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. So the idea of discipleship or discipling someone, helping someone go from infancy in faith to maturity in faith, is a lifelong process. In fact, everyone in this room that calls themselves a Christian is somewhere on the chart or the spectrum of, of growing to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that process for us, while on this side of glory, has not ended. So we should be people that are active in the process of being discipled. So to give you a clear definition for our working uh, of the sermon tonight, it's this. Discipleship is the process by which a person learns to follow, that's what the word disciple means, a person learns to follow Christ more closely. This is done through close relationships with fellow believers. In these relationships, there is encouragement, edification, teaching, admonishing, confession, accountability, and love. So discipleship is the process by which brothers and sisters in Christ develop a relationship for the purpose of helping each other become more like Jesus Christ. Active, engaging with each other, 
helping each other, teaching each other, encouraging each other, and holding each other accountable so that they could pursue a closer walk with Jesus Christ. That active process of becoming a better disciple of Jesus in the confines of relationship is what we would call discipleship. And that's exactly what Paul is telling Titus to teach these people. In fact, this is the second big thing that Paul wants Titus to do. When he says, set in order that which is lacking, make sure you get elders, leaders in the local church set up. The second thing is, make sure you instruct older men and older women to be investing in teaching, training, you might say discipling younger men and younger women. That's the second big thing that Paul has for Titus when, when it comes to him building or establishing healthy churches. In fact, in verse 1, he says, you ought to teach this thing, which is sound doctrine. The word sound means healthy. That means if people do the things that you're telling them to do, the results will be that they are healthy Christians. So this is both for the older and the younger, that if discipleship is happening in our, in our congregation, older investing in younger, younger learning from older and becoming more like Jesus Christ in that relational process, both the older and the younger will be healthier as Christians for it. Sounds pretty good, right? But somewhere along the line, did I hear a yes or that was good? <laughs> One person here agrees, all right. <laughs> um, somewhere along the line though, if we could take just a quick history detour, don't check out on me, just hang in there with me. The idea of discipleship has kind of been lost on the American church. In fact, when I talk about discipleship, how uh, for most of you in here, that word might actually not be very common. And in fact, it might even make you a little bit uncomfortable. Um, you, you might not have heard the idea of being involved in discipleship too much, maybe growing up in church. And I want to give you just a quick background to kind of explain where discipleship was actually lost for a little while, kind of faded to the background. It was in the late 1970s and in the, into the early 80s. There was a growing model for how people believed you should, quote, do church. There, there was an emerging kind of mindset around the American church about how it should operate. And when I explain this, you'll see it pretty clearly and it'll make sense to you. This model came about in response to the rapid growth of church attendance that we saw in post-World War II America. So in the middle of the 1940s, America, you know, comes out of World War II and things begin to escalate. Uh, things begin to go well for America. You know, post-World War II, industry is going well. Uh, the economy is roaring. Uh, things are going good for America in general. And that's where the idea of a Christian nation really got crystallized in the, in the fiber of our, of our um, nation here. And so in that time, church attendance just skyrocketed. It surged in our country. So the surge in attendance, which was accomplished by the church growth movement, you can look that up if you want to learn more about it. It was also accomplished by this big movement after World War II, where missionaries were called to come home and be missionaries on our own soil. There was this sort of um, patriotism that was welling in our country after World War II that a lot of missionaries that were in other countries were drawn back to America to become more missionaries here on our own soil. So church attendance grew from that. Maybe some of you remember that. Um, bus ministries took off. Anybody here a product of bus ministry? I'm just curious. Anybody, no one? Oh, that's interesting. All right. Did anybody, anybody have a bus ministry in their church? Okay, there we go. All right, all right. 
So you saw people coming on buses. That's good. All right. So, so bus ministry was a pretty popular thing as well. And all of that gave rise to the church attendance growing. And what came about because of that was what this model of church that I'm going to give you the, the fancy word that they call it today was the attractional model of church. The attractional model of church. Meaning, here's what happened. As church attendance began to rise, churches all across America had a bunch of people that were wanting to go to church. And so what churches began to do was they began to believe for us to grow as a church, like here in Pickerington, we actually have to be the most attractional place for all these people that want to go to church to come to church with us. Everybody with me so far? Well, this is what was taking place, okay? And so what happened in our churches in the mid-70s into the 80s and early 90s was this big push to have the best youth group, to have the best worship styles or the worship activities, to have the best programs for our people, to have the best preacher who was dynamic and charismatic that would draw people. And if you had the best of all of these things, you would then, like the church that you're a part of, you would go home to your neighborhood to a bunch of people that were going to go to church and tell them, boy, you should really come to our church because we've got the best youth group, the best programs, the best mission opportunities, the best preacher. Thank you for saying that, by the way. And, and, and the best and the best and the best and the best. And that, that, was, that began to come into the church mindset for a while. And so as, as the attendance was swelling, we said, how are we going to get people to come to us? We've got to be the best. All right. So you're with me so far. And what happened was people liked the product church leaders were putting out. So they invited their friends to join them. And as I speak of that, does that sound pretty familiar to you? Sound pretty familiar? Okay, good. But something really subtle happened in the DNA of our churches as this was really happening. Something happened that was kind of subtle that we didn't see coming. In this time, we changed the nature of the church member. That's you. We changed the expectation of the church member. We changed what we believed the church member was supposed to be doing. You see, what happened when the attractional church model took on, took, came into the American church, we then just expected you to be our marketing arm for the church and the consumer of our church product. That's it. As church leaders began to believe that their job was to provide the best church product, the best youth group, the best worship, the best preacher, the best so on and so forth, this changed the member. The member then slowly became a consumer and no longer a participant in church. Many of us were shaped by this era of church that are in this room tonight. Think about the implications for a moment. Just, just Think with me for a moment, and you'll sound familiar, I'm sure. You have leaders spending a great deal of time stressing about how they're going to make sure the product that they put out is the very best so that their church members are happy with it, and they tell more people about it. And then when members stop being participants and start being consumers, the only thing they're left to do is critique the product. Song Lina was good. It wasn't good. Preacher was okay. He was fine. He was decent. Oh, man, that youth group activity was great. It wasn't great. When church members are just consumers, like you going to a movie or you going to a restaurant, 
What's the only thing you get to do when the food is put in front of you or the flick is on the screen? Critique what's before you. Because you didn't participate in making the movie, right? Nor did you participate in making the food. You just are critiquing the product that's put in front of you. And so when we're just consumers, all we're left with is critique and criticism and picking, not participating. Okay. That creates for us an incredibly vicious cycle that is unhealthy in our churches. You have members that are shut out of really participating in church. You have leaders stressing about how they're going to keep these critiquing members happy by making better and better products for them. And that cycle just feeds itself in a vicious way. Which is, by the way, one of the major reasons why we spent almost a year teaching here. That we believe the responsibility of church leaders is not to just produce great products for you to consume. But to equip you to participate in the work of the body of Christ. That's why we're doing this. Okay. And the second thing that happened in this vicious cycle was also the only and most important areas of service in the church, if it's just about the product we produce, becomes just the Sunday worship service. So the most important thing is if you lead a prayer in Sunday service or if you lead singing or you preach, and we amplified those roles and have forgotten about the lifeblood of the church outside of this one building at one particular time. As one man said, we have churched our people, but we have not discipled them. Disciple is about all of your life, not just what we do here collectively in an assembly. So as we think about the loss of discipleship for a period of time in our history, and as we think about how it, what it takes to regain that, let me share with you the importance of this quickly. Discipleship is not in Scripture just a kind of suggestion for a ministry that churches should think should think about doing like you know if you get around to it here's a couple options you might want to think about discipleship and and having people get involved in that it's a good idea no 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 discipleship is the lifeblood of a church a man by the name of Mike Breen and Steve Cockrum wrote a book called building discipleship culture and in it they said this listen carefully they said effective discipleship builds the church, not the other way around. He said, we need to understand the church as the effect of discipleship and not the cause. If you set out to build the church, there's no guarantee you'll actually make disciples. It is far more likely that you will create consumers who depend on spiritual services that religious professionals provide. But if you set out to make disciples, you will have a church. And his point is this. Do you see this? It's a chicken and egg kind of uh, discussion. That if we just set out to build a church, and what he means by that, you've got to read in between it. What he means is if all we worry about is location and a building and programs and, and the things that we produce, if that's all we seek to build, we might make a disciple or two. But we'll definitely have what we call church. But if we make disciples, there's no doubt we'll have church because church is the people. Okay, so from our text tonight, how do we really do discipleship? You'll see it's actually kind of simple. I hope that tonight you'll be able to walk away saying, I can this week begin 
investing in a relationship that will help me become more like Jesus Christ in this body here. I hope by the end of this, you'll see that it's really not that difficult. First, uh, there, there, there are six things I want to share with you very quickly, very, very simple from our text that you see come out about how to do effective discipleship. First of all, it's very clear that Paul wants Titus to teach these people that same gendered relationships are important. Now, now there's a lot of good things that can happen in mixed gender relationships. In fact, um, you know, there can be exhortation, there can be teaching, there can be admonishing. But when it comes to the intimacy required for real discipleship to happen, the space for people to be really known and to, to practice real confession and to help each other in their lives, Paul is very, very specific about the fact that older men invest in younger men and older women invest in younger women. And I don't think that this is just a cultural mandate saying, listen, if it weren't like this uh, in Crete, it wouldn't matter. I think there's actually a, um, you know, kind of an internal principle here that God wants older men to be raising up younger men and older women to be training and raising up younger women. So first thing, discipleship happens in same-gendered small groups. Secondly, these same-gendered groups are designed to be intergenerational. You notice that he doesn't just say, you notice he says older men and younger men, older women and younger women. Now, this is a point where we actually have to be focused, intentional, and do this on purpose to try to make this happen because we naturally will gravitate towards those who make us feel most comfortable. And those that make us feel most comfortable are those of the same generation as us. That's why you see natural generational divides happen. And there's nothing wrong with generational divides and comfort and, and people spending time with those that are of the same age as them. But when it comes to helping people become more like Jesus Christ, he says that this actually happens intergenerational. Now, this doesn't mean that it has to be someone who's 80 and someone who's 15 and that, have that huge of a span. Intergenerational could be something as simple as five to ten years difference. Somebody who's five to ten years ahead of you on what they're doing in their life, where you are and where they are. So think about just five to ten years difference in this room. That means that somebody here who is 70 can work with somebody who might just be 60. Pretty close in age. But that person is 10 years farther along in their life. They can share with them what they've learned. They can grow with them. They can encourage each other. That also means this, that someone who's, who is 25 can begin to invest in those that are 15, 18, 19, right? To connect with them and help them think through decisions they're making at 17, 18, and 19 to try to work through that. And doesn't that make sense that we would ought to think seriously about doing that? Okay, so same gendered, intergenerational. Number three, discipleship is intended to be transformational. There's a really important word uh, that Paul uses in a lot of places, but here specifically he says in verse four that the older women are to train the younger women. Train, the word is train. Uh, Paul would use it later in other places for older men to train younger men. And this word train has so much packed inside of it. It's really important. But what it brings out is that not just one party, but both parties are actually blessed and changed by the process of discipleship. See, that word, tra that word train doesn't just mean older, wiser person instructing younger person on what to do. 
What it actually has embedded in it is the, is the teaching that what the older person has received from God, instruction, wisdom, learning, um, is they're designed to actually pass that on to somebody younger. In fact, in that word train, in the root of that word, it actually means the word balance, meaning it, to, to take two things and try to balance a scale. And what it's trying to get at is this idea that if you're a person who has received wisdom, insight, guidance, from God, and you don't share that with somebody, you're actually not balanced as a Christian. To train someone is the very thing that balances you, that, that makes you stable, that makes you healthy, that helps you grow as an older Christian. Does that make sense? So the things that you've been given, the things that you've been blessed with, the things that you have been guided by, the mistakes that you made, the things that you've learned from, all of that that you have, picture that on one side of the scale. And if you're not passing that on to somebody else, the, the Bible's saying that you're actually not going to be stable and balanced. But when you pass that on to younger people, he actually says that that balances you as a person. Interesting, right? And what's really cool about this process if you'll engage in this, is that people that are about a generation behind you, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, or 5 years, will ask you questions about your life that you have yet to figure out the answer, but you do have an answer to. And as they ask you questions about how you handled your kids when they were in their toddler age, or how you dealt with career changes, or how you handled, you know, lulls in your marriage, or how you handled, you know, doubts in your faith, when they ask you questions like that, and you haven't really challenged yourself to think of the answer, as you process that answer, you will grow as a Christian. And you'll be blessing that younger person. And so when we do discipleship in a relational format where we're investing in people, it balances us as Christians, and it helps us grow. Fourthly, discipleship needs to be both seen and heard. In fact, you notice in verse two and three, Paul says, uh, older men are to be. He doesn't say older men are, are to say. He says older men are to be. And then in verse three, he says, likewise, older women are to be. The first thing he's concerned with is the actual character of the person who's going to be discipling somebody. What he's interested in is making sure that you possess good character, that you possess that you're self-controlled, that you're spiritually minded, that you are living the way that you ought to be living. In fact, the way that you live and the demonstration of your faith is one of the most powerful forms of discipleship. Just letting somebody into your home to watch you interact with your spouse, to watch you deal with your children, to watch you handle crises, to let somebody into your life, to watch you live as a Christian, yes, to even make mistakes and admit those mistakes and move forward, to let somebody watch you is one of the strongest forms of discipleship. I think of the lessons that I've learned uh, about how to try to be the kind of man that I should be in my life, and I know that a vast majority of those I have learned from watching people who don't know that they've taught me something, but watching them interact. And so Paul is very much concerned with how we live but also how we, how we speak, too. In fact, he weaves together both uh, the Word of God and our lives uh, together in this. Number five, uh, effective discipleship is both frequent and it's consistent. Discipleship is not a one-time event where you 
ask somebody to come to your house, you have dinner with them, and you tell them a few things, and then you send them on their way. In fact, in those relationships, all you can do is, from a distance, shout information. Discipleship is actually intended to build the bridge of relationship that can bear the weight of truth, both positively when affirming and strengthening them, but eventually, as you build that relationship that can bear the weight of truth, at times even corrective truth. Hey, I see the way you're doing this, and here's a better way to do that. Have you thought about doing something this way? I'm concerned about some of the decisions you're making and the way that you're going in this area. And you won't be able to carry those kind of truths to people, and you won't feel confident to do that, and you won't allow yourself to do that, and it won't be well-received if there's not a relationship that's established. And so frequency and consistency is definitely required for good discipleship. Meeting weekly or biweekly helps break down the barriers that we build with people, and it helps build trust. I want to encourage you as you embark on this idea of discipleship to be patient, to be really patient with those relationships. It takes time. Make small investments into those relationships and be committed to them over the long haul so that they could grow and become what God wants them to be. And lastly, let me leave you with this. Effective discipleship is about our life and also about God's word. And these two are not separate ideas, but in fact, they are woven together. Paul here speaks uh, about some very basic things. Like he tells the older women to train younger women on how to work in their homes and how to love their husbands. Pretty basic things, right? Pretty standard life things. But he's interested in older women investing in younger women for that. But at the same time, he says these things that might appear to be mundane, like how to work in your home or how to love your spouse or how to care for your children, at the same time are to be done so that the word of God is not discredited, but actually honored and glorified. Effective discipleship is about both everyday life and the word of God. And Paul weaves both the home and how we live and the word of God together. And I want to encourage you as, as, a, very, as a side note of encouragement, basic practicality. We have tools available for you to do discipleship. Discipleship is nothing more complex than just people investing in each other in same-gendered, committed relationships of discipleship to try to help each other grow. We've got some tools that are out there. You could do things like um, take the sermon notes, and after a sermon on a Sunday, you could meet together with one or two people and, and talk about that. And in those spaces, talk about their life, what's going on in their life, what you can pray about for them, study the word together, and pray for each other, and do that frequently. We've got some other tools like a thing called Discovery Bible Study, where it takes a simple passage, and it asks you five or six questions about that passage, and it gives you some questions where you can have group discussion and do that. We've got them for you if you'd like to have those and begin using them. You can go on our website where we have on our resources tab, or I think it's under Engage Scripture, where we have uh, tools for studying the Bible. And there are questions that are there where you can get together with people and you could pray together and study the Bible together and talk together and get to know each other. Church, this kind of fellowship is vital for our congregation to be healthy. If all we depend upon when it comes to relationships is showing up on Sunday and seeing each other for a few hours and going off into our lives, we won't be woven together the way that God wants us to. And I don't think that we will grow the way that God wants us to grow. 
And so I want to encourage all of you to think seriously, to pray about this, to consider how can you begin, and many of you have these relationships that are already built, and maybe you're already doing this, and maybe not. And maybe it's just a, a simple addition of some uh, more thoughtful discipleship into the discussions that you already have with people, into the relationships that are already built so that you and those that are in your life can grow closer to Jesus Christ. You know, ultimately, discipleship, the investment from one person into another for the training of becoming like Christ is something we didn't invent or something that we didn't just come up with. In fact, we learned it from God himself. If you look down in verse 11, God began discipling us from the very beginning with Christ. When he says in verse 11 of chapter 2, that the grace of God has appeared. Grace was the original discipler. When he says the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But look what grace is supposed to do in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You know, the thing that grace is supposed to do for you in your private life, which helps you deny sin and worldly lusts, pursue godliness and righteousness, to invoke a deeper hope and a passion for Jesus to return, a deeper love for Jesus who came for you, and ultimately to know that you are Christ's possession and ready to serve him, that's the basic desire of these groups that we are encouraging you to get involved in where you invest in relationships, where you help each other deny ungodliness, deny worldly lusts, to pursue godliness and uprightness, and invoke in each other a flame of a hope that Jesus Christ will return one day and you'll be ready for him. We want that to be part of our body here, part of your life, because that means that we will become the kind of healthy church that God wants us to be. If you are not a person who is spiritually healthy right now, maybe God's grace really isn't discipling you in your own private, personal life, on your own time, we want to first start by helping you get in touch with the grace of God so that it makes you the person that you ought to be, and ultimately get involved in relationships that help you become more like Jesus. If you need uh, anything tonight, we're here to help. Let's stand and sing.